0: Why has it gotten harder rather than easier to vote in the United States over the past decade? What can be done about the risk of stolen elections in the United States? How have the Supreme Court's decisions on redistricting voting rights and gerrymandering affected the quality of American democracy? On season three, episode eight of the ELB podcast, we speak with Wendy Weiser, vice president for the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm very pleased for the final episode of Season 3 of the ELB Podcast to welcome Wendy Weiser. Wendy Weiser is Vice President for Democracy at the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonpartisan think tank and public interest law center that works to revitalize, reform, and defend systems of democracy and justice. Wendy's been a real leader in the field for many years and has a kind of perspective on the election system and what's going on with voting in the United States. I thought it would be really good to bring her in for the final discussion of this season. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Wendy.
1: Thank you for having me, Rick.
0: So I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to for the last episode of the third season of the ELB podcast because you as head of the democracy program at the Brennan Center really has a kind of 30,000 foot view of what's going on about the state of voting rights and elections in the United States. And so that's what I wanted to spend some time talking about. And I thought we could start by asking a general question about voting in the United States. How hard is it to vote in the United States today? And is it harder to vote today than it was, say, 10 years ago. Well,
1: yes, it is undoubtedly in at least half the country harder to vote today than it was 10 years ago. Um, We are actually seeing um, a bifurcation where some states are making it harder to vote and continuously adding more and more restrictions. And that trend is really escalating and has really stepped up since the 2020 election. And some other states are actually going in the opposite direction and starting to make voting easier, more convenient and liberalizing their um, voting process.
0: And that obviously has a partisan valence today. It's mostly red states where we're seeing not all red states, but uh, where restrictions are being put in place, they're in red states and in blue states, they're being Expanded in some ways. What explains this partisan divide on voting? And how does an organization like the Brennan Center, which tries to be nonpartisan but supports voting rights, maintain itself in a lane where it is trying to support voting rights without taking a side in a battle between political parties?
1: You know, it's a a really good question and a a real difficult reality um, in the country that voting rights has become so sharply polarized along partisan lines. Um, The Brennan Center has long supported voting rights long before there was this partisan divide. And I've been doing this work for now over 15 years. And when I started out, the um, attacks on voting rights were not. Um, exclusively happening on one side of the aisle, and the efforts to expand access to voting and improve the voting process were not. That has um, sharpened and metastasized over the past decade, and especially in recent years. And in fact, the 2020 election um, and the big lie that was perpetrated by the Trump campaign and its supporters has really nailed in that partisan divide uh, and made it much more intractable than it has been before. You know, from the Brennan Center's perspective, we we support voting rights for everyone, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. This is a neutral principle, one of the founding principles of our republic and one of the core bedrock principles of our entire system of government. You know, this is it is foundational. It is non-negotiable, regardless of what political parties say and support. And, you know, that there are still Republicans who are supportive of voting rights, but it has become a defining issue right now um, in Republican politics in a way that is, is frightening and is fairly new.
0: So what are the ways to try to fight back against restrictive voting rules? What is it that is the primary lever to try to restore or support voting rights? Is it the court's Is it political action in the states? Is it organizing so that if a state imposes a restrictive registration or voting rule that people are organized to be able to get around it? What do you see as the most effective ways to try to combat efforts to make it harder for people to register or to vote?
1: Sadly, the tools to combat these attacks on voting, and actually there are even More and newer threats to the electoral process that are even beyond the vote suppression measures are getting fewer and less effective over time. But we need all of them. And I wouldn't elevate one as being more effective than the others. They are all under stress and attack. Um, and they are all necessary, ultimately, to protect voting rights in America. The chief um, tool that was deployed and that ultimately didn't lead to success this year was federal legislation. The attacks on voting rights are happening principally at the state level. It is the state legislatures that are passing laws that are rolling back access to voting. The Constitution gives Congress the express power to override those state laws as it relates to federal elections and even more powers to protect against discrimination in the voting process. Congress can pass and had a robust legislation that was pending and that came really close to passage, and we can talk about it a little bit later. That is um, ultimately a necessary tool. We're never going to get out of these voting wars, of these partisan battles, of this threat if we don't put in place stronger federal legal protections for voting rights and fair election administration. But... In the meantime, in the absence of federal legislation, there are many other tools that we have to deploy. We, we need to um, ensure that our democracy survives and that popular sovereignty <laughs> rules. Um, and so the courts have been critical. They are becoming weaker and weaker sources of protections. The, the federal courts in particular have rolled back federal legal protections. The state courts have been, you know, they are still, though, a, a reasonably um, a necessary backstop and they are still stopping some of the most significant abuses. The state courts are starting to step up. Again, that's a mixed bag. Some of the state courts um, do robustly protect voting rights. Others do not. Um, And ultimately, we're going to need lots of mobilization in the public. We've seen for the first time, actually, businesses step up, the first time since um, the civil rights era, businesses across America step up and start to speak out in favor of voting rights. We're seeing a very broad, multiracial, multi-issue coalition of stakeholders mobilizing around voting rights. These efforts have had some impact in blunting some of the worst legislative efforts in the states. Not enough. There need, this needs to be a sustained push. Um, so all of these levers need to be deployed at the same time. But ultimately, we're going to need the courts and we're going to need federal legislation if this is this experiment is going to survive.
0: So for a, a, probably over a year, the Brennan Center had been pushing for passage of the For the People Act, later known as the Freedom to Vote Act, as well as later the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act when it had been written. Those efforts seem to be not going anywhere in this Congress. Is there hope, and we could and we talk about the election subversion piece of this later, is there hope for any federal voting rights legislation to pass out of this Congress at this point?
1: There's always hope. I think it is increasingly unlikely that we're going to see federal legislation um, before the election this year. Um, there is an active legislative effort right now to reform the Electoral Count Act. So that is an arcane piece of legislation that governs the selection of electors um, and the count of the um, electors for in, in the vote for presidential um, elections that um, will not be Will not impact the 2022 election. So that, that, you know, has some momentum still ongoing in this Congress. Um, I, I think that there uh, it, it is moving slowly. So I, I think that, that, that it is increasingly unlikely that we'll see any real serious legislative push before the election. So the real federal push is going to have to be a, a medium term or a longer term push before these pieces of legislation become viable again. But again, I think that they are critical. I think that we are going to continue to see... Increasing efforts to push the envelope, not just on vote suppression, but on election subversion and on gerrymandering and on attacks on election officials and impartial election administration. It's going to get increasingly aggressive unless there are some federal breaks put in the process, unless there are minimum federal standards that can't be manipulated by state legislatures. And we're seeing a real increased politicization of this process. At all levels, right now.
0: So I want to turn to the issue of election subversion, uh, which you just mentioned. You know, I think if you and I were talking five years ago, I doubt we would have had fear of a stolen election in the United States on our list of many fears that we we both have lists of. I'm sure, but the 2020 election really seemed to be a wake up call where there's something seemed to change, and Donald Trump's relentless efforts between Election Day and January 6th, 2021, to try to overturn the results of the election, ultimately led to this insurrection. And as we're recording just today, uh, former Judge Luddig had uh, an op-ed in uh, on CNN, uh, where he said that 2020 was a dry run for 2024. So two-part question. First, how concerned are you about the risk of election subversion in the 2024 elections. And part two, what do you think we should be doing about
1: it? I'm very concerned about the risk of election subversion. I'm concerned about the not just the erosion of the relentless erosion of trust in our electoral process that is um, fueling these election subversion threats. But it is happening on so many different levels. And this is um, part of what's really scary about this is it's not just one plot. It's not just a plot to submit fake electors. There are multiple strategies being teed up at once. And so there's a lot of guardrails that need to be put in place and watchdogging that needs to be put in place Even the vote suppression that um, we've been talking about is a form of election subversion. It's an attempt to try to exclude targeted portions of the population from being able to vote or to have their votes counted, presumably because that might influence the election outcome and change who is selected. But what we've seen are now much more aggressive and direct strategies, not just the what we're reading about in tweets and um, in um, document um, dumps of what the plot was in 2020. We're seeing legislative efforts in states across the country that would actually facilitate or open the door to partisan meddling and interference in election outcomes in a way that would have been unthinkable, that um, some of the bills that we're seeing are are completely brazen and egregious, um, bills that uh, the most brazen ones were bills that would actually enable partisan legislatures or individual partisan actors to directly overturn election results um, and to just thwart the will of the voters in a very brazen, direct way. In Texas, there was a bill that was literally called overturning election. And um, in Arizona, there was, and actually again is a bill that um, would give legislature the legislature the power to just uh, change the election results to throw it out and to replace it. Um, Those, thankfully, have not passed and, and are probably unlikely to pass. But there is a broader array of legislation that's pushing the envelope that is passing and that is creating a risk. These are legislation that are, you know, imposing criminal penalties on election officials for facilitating voting access, legislation that is enabling partisans to take over um, to either remove election officials from office midstream if they don't like them, or to take over certain election administration functions. We're seeing a lot of proliferation of these partisan election reviews, these fake audits of elections that are being used to harass or um, election officials or now increasingly voters and to politicize the process. So these kinds of legislative efforts, are proliferating and are passing, and are putting pressure on election officials and on voters and on legislators and on candidates for public office to support. Election sabotage efforts, and there's a lot of different points and places in the process where the where the election could be subverted if the rule of law is not observed <laughs> or if the system is perverted and and I'll just add you know one of the most frightening developments in the last two years has been the way in which election officials have been in the crosshairs and under attack, and we've been tracking that with. Um, Studies and surveys finding that we we, um, twice surveyed local election officials nationwide, found that um, more than one in six have actually had their lives or their families' lives threatened on the job. Um, One in three of them actually report that they know somebody who has left the job because of those threats. And we're actually seeing not surprisingly experienced election administrators across the country leaving in droves. Um, Our our survey found that one in five of the sitting election administrators plan to leave before 2024. That's going to be a real loss of capacity, talent, experience. But that's on top of how many have already left in many places like Philadelphia's hemorrhage. One in three had already have already left um, uh, right after the 2020 election. They are under pressure. They are being threatened because of these lies about the 2020 election. So that is, and they're facing an increasing political pressure. And now the people that are coming in to replace them are no longer standing, many of them aren't standing up for the rule of law. Many of them are running on these lies or even implicitly promising that they might if faced with a similar set of facts in 2024, might sabotage the outcome and bend the result. And so these are really frightening developments for free and fair and and, and for just for neutral election administration in America. And it's something that we we need to really address immediately.
0: And in terms of how to address it, it sounds like I'm guessing your answer is going to be similar to what you said about voting rights that it's going to have to be a multi-pronged attack. So what what is it that the Brennan Center is doing now and what do you think needs to be done? Uh, you talked about the possibility of federal legislation and I, I know that there is a bipartisan push there that could maybe change the Electoral Count Act, maybe provide for some protection for election officials and election workers. What else is there to be done?
1: There really does need to be um, a multi-pronged attack on the attacks on impartial election administration. Um, Federal legislation is key. There's also a lot that the federal government can and should do outside of the legislative context that could at least increase security of the election process and for election officials that um, they actually, at the Department of Justice, have developed a task force um, the mission of which is to coordinate and facilitate better protection of election officials and election administration. That needs to be really resourced, and that task force needs to um, uh, work very closely with um, election officials across the country so that they actually feel those protections. There needs to be coordination with law enforcement um, at all levels of government. It's it's typically at the state and local level where these protections need to come. And that needs to be done sensitively in a way that doesn't fuel up or increase law enforcement presence in elections, because that could actually be a source of Voter um, intimidation or a deterrence itself, but the, but law enforcement really needs to step up. There are legislative efforts in many states to increase privacy protections for election officials. They're getting their private information disclosed publicly. They're getting docs. They're getting um, people outside their homes. There needs to be um, that information needs to be able to be private. They need to have increased security protections for election workers. These are th- th- they're not. Um, they do not get protection as a matter of course. These are public service jobs that are not well paid, <laughs> so they don't even have the resources themselves to, uh, to get the kinds of protections they need. That is a responsibility of the states. And of course, there's a responsibility of all of us to shore up support for and protection of the election administrators and to actually make it a job that people would continue to be willing to take this important public service that um, helps to run our democracy to prevent this, this crisis of staffing shortages and to ensure that um, the election officials who are sitting in those positions and remain in those positions not only aren't vulnerable to violence, but aren't vulnerable to political pressure which I think they need to have support from the community and from their own political environment so that they can continue to thwart those efforts to corrupt the process.
0: Well, I want to turn finally to the question of gerrymandering. Last decade saw two huge changes in how the Supreme Court approaches issues of redistricting. One, the court decided the Shelby County versus Holder case, which removed federal preclearance of jurisdictions that had a history of racial discrimination voting. So their redistricting plans no longer needed federal approval. And second, the court in Rucho versus Common Cause closed the federal courthouse door on partisan gerrymandering claims. And so this is a very different world we are living in, in terms of redistricting today. Some people seem to think that redistricting turns out to be no problem this election season, because with both Democrats and Republicans trying to gerrymander, it was kind of a wash politically. Is that your view of what's going on? And, 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 if, and if you see that there are continued problems, what, what are they?
1: Gerrymandering, you know, continues to be a serious problem in America. This is now our second redistricting cycle that is characterized by widespread partisan political gerrymandering. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons why this is a problem. Um, so first this gerrymandering is happening at the expense of communities of color. And so the gerrymandering is not racially neutral um, in many of the places where it is happening. It is happening by reducing the political power or not recognizing the increased population and um, clout of communities of color in states that had the vast bulk of their population growth come from the growth of the communities of color in those states. We should be seeing an increased share of representation for those communities. We're seeing it either stay constant or in you know, a number of places, the share go down despite the population going up. So that's one significant problem. Now, gerrymandering impacts people's representation regardless of the overall representation in a legislative body. And I think that these are two principles. They're both important. There there should be a fair partisan balance. The legislature should reflect the overall partisan balance of the country or the jurisdiction that is voting, but it also should provide adequate representation at the district level for the communities that are being represented. We're seeing in many states, even if they're being counterbalanced by gerrymanders by the other political party at the national level, voters are being locked out. The gerrymanders are locking in political power for one political party um, that is going to be durable throughout the course of the entire decade. And voters are not going to have a say. They're not going to be able to hold their representatives accountable. They're not going to be able to elect the representatives of their choice. Um, I-, I should say, as a partisan matter, it's not actually a wall. Gosh. I think it, the Republican gerrymanders and the Democratic gerrymanders are somewhat different. Uh, the Republican gerrymanders are, are going to be much more durable and less vulnerable to wave elections than the Democratic ones. So I'm not even sure that at the national level that this is going to balance out in congressional districts. And we should note, it's not only... Congress where we're seeing gerrymandering, we're seeing gerrymandering and extreme gerrymandering at the state um, level as well. And one of the biggest victims of gerrymandering, um, and that is especially acute this cycle, is competition. We are seeing a dramatic reduction in the number of competitive seats. Again, so that voters have less of a say in the ultimate outcome of who's representing them. And Texas provides a very vivid example of that. Um, The number uh, in the um, congressional maps, they reduce the number of competitive seats from 14 to just three. The number of highly competitive seats are down from six to one. Um, uh, my colleagues have looked at the change in number of competitive congressional districts overall, and they've found a significant decline. And where Republicans have drawn the maps, the percentage of districts that were competitive, and they were defining that as with an eight point swing or less, went down from 14 percent to 8 percent, where Democrats drew the maps, it went down from 13 percent to 4 percent. So we are seeing a smaller and smaller number of districts that are competitive. Now, courts and commissions have, did a better job and they've in, in preserving competition, but competition is being squeezed out by gerrymandering. So we're seeing you know, many ways in which this is <laughs> injuring representation, it's voters that are being locked out. And as you note, we have far fewer legal protections than before and and tools to challenge these redistricting abuses because of this series of decisions by the US Supreme Court. We are seeing state courts step in. So state, state courts are starting to be more robust in policing, gerrymandering in at least a number of states. And those decisions are now under attack also by the federal courts.
0: Yeah. So if you look at voting rights, you look at the risk of election subversion, you look at redistricting, and then you look at what the Supreme Court has done, it certainly hasn't helped things. How much is the Supreme Court going forward going to be an impediment to the kind of democracy enhancing steps that we need to take as a country?
1: So the Supreme Court's already done significant damage. to our democracy, to voting rights, to our ability to protect against election subversion. And we haven't even talked about, um, and and against gerrymandering, we haven't even talked about money in politics, which is, you know, the the Supreme Court um, and the Roberts Court, one of its principal agendas and legacies is going to be the series of decisions rolling back uh, American democracy, voting rights, um, redistricting protections, money and politics, regulations. How much worse can it get and will it get? That's a, a, a good predictive question. There's certainly some worrying cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that I am certainly very concerned that the Supreme Court is poised to inflict significant additional damage to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the nationwide protections against discrimination in voting in a case that's pending, um, or in a series of cases that are pending, but um, as it applies to redistricting. So right now, we still have strong protections against discrimination under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In the redistricting context, the court has dramatically cut back protections, um, these nationwide protections in the voting rights context, but redistricting, it's still, that decision didn't impact redistricting. I am worried that there is another shoe that's about to drop that's going to really significantly undermine protections for communities of color in the redistricting process. There are some radical theories that are being presented to the U.S. Supreme Court to roll back voting rights and protections against election sabotage and against gerrymandering that have never yet been adopted and that um, I, I think are really frightening. There's a real risk that the court might take up the invitation to roll back voting rights further with this radical new legal theory called the independent state legislature theory. But I don't predict that it's going to come to pass. I think that this is actually something that can be um, successfully fought back because it is a, a radical theory that is, it is deeply wrong. It is deeply contrary to Textualism, constitutional history would be deeply damaging to our electoral system. And I think that when the court looks at it, it has no grounding in text history um, or uh, or policy that um, when it looks at it more closely, that it is going to decline to take that up.
0: Well, I guess that's a slight bit of hope. (laughs) Let, Let me pivot to that and ask you, besides, you know, a slim hope that the Supreme Court doesn't do more damage. What, what does give you hope for American democracy today?
1: What gave me the most hope um, in the last few years was the massive movement that mobilized to try to shore up voting rights and um, our democracy and push for federal legislation that was a multiracial, a broad, multi-issue coalition of stakeholders that mobilized in a sustained way to move those issues to the top of the legislative agenda and got the entire Democratic Party in Congress mobilized around a robust set of reforms, made it a top priority for the president of the United States for a period of time. And this was this was actually a significant change, a new movement in America that I think is going to be sustained because the problems are so acute and the need for this push is is, is so apparent that that's, that's where the hope comes from, that it, the, our democracy is not going to be sustained if we don't fight for it. And it was the mobilization of this movement and the growth of this consensus, at least in a significant portion of the populace, that This is a top priority that we need to attend to our democracy, to our voting rights, to our electoral system. If we are going to move forward um, on any of the other issues that we care about, that that gives me hope. And we saw um, and I think it was the same mobilization that drove that historic turnout in the 2020 election in the face of a pandemic in the face of efforts to sabotage the election, in the face of efforts to suppress votes, we still saw the highest voter turnout um, in a century. And we still saw um, in the face of all of these challenges, a very successful election run with the assistance of not just our election administrators, but really so many sectors of society. (laughs) Um, that kind of mobilization and commitment is where the hope lies. <laughs> the solutions, we, we, we have a good idea of what, what would work, what solutions would work, and we need to have the political will and the sustained momentum to actually get those adopted, whether they be in the courts, whether they be in the Congress, whether they be in the state legislatures, it, it does start with that demand. And, and that's where I have hope.
0: Well, thank you for fighting the good fight and for all that you and the Brennan Center are doing on issues of crucial importance to American democracy. Uh, Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center, thanks so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Rick. And thanks for all that you do for keeping all our attention on all these and so many other issues that (laughs) keep us all up at night.
0: The ALB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ALB podcast is Melody Rowell. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.